0: welcome to the everything series where the possibilities are endless every month a host produce a new episode for your listening enjoyment so kick back relax and get ready for everything When I started my sophomore year, I was given the English teacher, Mr. Calderon. Shortly after, one of my good friends told me that his class would become super stressful and advised me to switch out, so I went to the counseling office. Luckily, they told me I couldn't just switch out of a class because of what some friend said, so I had to stay. Shortly after that, Mr. Calderon had the annual story week with my class and it won me over. As the year went on, he shared more stories with us and I realized that the characters were far too interesting and lovable not to share. So I pitched the idea of an episode to him and he gladly accepted. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode,
1: let's meet the author. Uh, My name is Ron Calderon. I was uh, born in Nevada, California in 1961 in October. first baby born to an employee at uh, what is now well, it's now Sutter Hospital. It used to be Indian Valley Community Hospital. We had nearly 55 children on our street, um, probably another 40 down plum, another maybe 20 around us, Rudnick. Um, a lot of play with older kids, uh, younger kids, a lot of freedom, uh, very, I, I guess would call a very structured family. His father was a military man, For uh, served two wars. My mother uh, both survived the Depression, uh, lived born before and survived through the Depression. Um, hard-working people. And um, I came from a family of five. Most families were at least two, three kids on our block. Um, and it was a time, you know, they moved there in the 50s, 1954. And um, so I was the, the last of five.
0: When did you first discover your passion for literature and writing?
1: Probably 11th, uh, 12th grade. I had some free time before baseball practice uh, my senior year. And I had read Grapes of Wrath and um, uh, The Moon is Down and The Pearl and uh, some of the uh, works at Steinbeck. And I decided I wanted to read more. And so I picked up, uh, went to the library and picked up uh, Of Mice and Men. I read it in a, a little over a period and went back the next day and read it again, and that's when I think I really started to take more of an interest.
0: So what do you think kind of pushed you to become an English teacher?
1: My graduate advisor, um, who's a writer himself, and I had spent many uh, days talking with him, you know, throughout the week I talked with him and a couple of the other writing professors, and he said, you know, don't don't become a high school English teacher, but become a professor. And I, I, I started on that track, and then I, I don't know. I just like the kids, uh, and I've always enjoyed uh, dealing with uh, young kids. I think a lot of times they have no real clue what the hell's going on with literature. They don't understand it, don't appreciate it, and I try to make it more uh, accessible for them. So I think that's what I, that's why I chose this level.
0: So on the topic of these stories, of which we're going to hear three today. Yes. Uh, how many would you say you've uh, written out uh,
1: I've started work i several years ago uh, I worked on a, a collection of narratives what I would call narratives and uh, that I would say probably anywhere 10 to twelve that that I feel comfortable with uh, five of six or which I'm really comfortable with the rest <laughs> um, and I've just uh, as the years passed I've never really buckled down and and until you brought this to me, uh, I decided to really go through some of those pieces. And, and uh, instead of editing on the fly, as they say, and trying to read, I really went back and kind of looked through some things. And I hope, I hope um, I've captured the rhythm of the prose, the kind of the, the essence of the adolescent point of view, as well as the perspective of someone who in his older years uh, gained a greater uh, appreciation of those people that, that helped shape who I am.
0: Okay, and uh, why do you feel? Because you tell you tell these you tell a couple of these stories to your students every year, right? Right. Yes. So why do you think? It, why do you feel it's necessary to tell these stories to your students?
1: Um, I think it. If anything, it. Um, I think everyone has a story to tell. That's why I enjoy teaching the narrative at the beginning of the year. I think everyone has a story to tell. Sometimes uh, students don't understand really um, the point of it. Uh, and I don't mean the point of why I teach it, but they don't understand the importance of their own story and and they don't they don't understand how much they could grow from kind of um that introspection of looking through looking back and and trying to make heads or tails of why this person did this or why they reacted a certain way. And, you know, I think in some respects, like Joseph Campbell always talks about with mythology, that that there are certain signs along the road, along the journey, that that if we don't read them properly, if we don't take time to read them, at least think about them, reflect on them, um, we often find ourselves lost. Um, I think it also shows students that we're all human, uh, that I'm up here, that at one point I was sitting in your chair, I was sitting in your desk. I was wondering if that girl was going to um, go out with me or if I was cute enough or, or handsome enough or, you know, athletic enough. And, um, and so I, I always try to at least somehow show that all of us are involved in this experience and that, and that certainly no one is any different than I am or I'm, you know, anything miraculous has happened to me that, or maybe something miraculous has happened to me that could happen to you. So, before we begin, I should mention
0: that all the stories you are about to hear are true. They are all tales from Mr. Calderon's childhood. Based in the 60s, you will meet three characters from his life, the first being John, an old man who values nothing more than a good baseball game, and although Ron didn't know him very well at the time, the introspective view of an older Mr. Calderon can shed light onto the significance of old John.
1: It wasn't an obsession, now that I think about it. He merely loved the sport. To him, it wasn't who won or lost, whether or not the athletes themselves performed haphazardly or mirrored the big leaguers he had grown up with, Ty Cobb, Lefty Gomez, Honus Wagner, Stan Musial. No, what mattered most was that a baseball game was being played and that he was a part of it, if only as a spectator. Day after day, inning by inning, out upon out, old John would sit in the creaking grandstands and watch 18 little leaguers try uneventfully to assume the role of their favorite major league counterparts, minus, of course, their wads of chewing tobacco, spikes, and most obviously, talent. When I wasn't preoccupied with breaking up double plays or swatting tight measure home runs—all two of them—even those were aided by a kind and strong tailwind—I would watch my fellow baseballers perched like a canary from the splintering platform of Panero's rickety scoreboard. But inevitably, my attention would be drawn away from the action on the field toward a haggardly hunchbacked gnome-like figure shuffling across Panero's gravel parking lot. Panero Park was the first and only ball field in Novato. Built of wood and cement and an open field that once belonged to old John and his grazing cows, it was likened after the big league stadiums the old man had hustled programs in as a kid. So there would be old John inching his way across the lot, a tattered McGregor scorebook under one arm, and was equally worn transistor radio in the opposite hand, its thin, twisted cord relaying the Major League game of the week Via the dingy, stained earplug that seemed trapped in his hairy eardrum, much like a fly suspended in a spider's web. Old John never missed the game of the week unless the batteries in his transistorized companion died, nor did he fail to keep score of at least one little league contest each week. And although he never mentioned any favorites. He always replayed the highlights of each game to my equally passionate father, who listened quietly to the old man's claim that I would someday play in the major leagues. Old John would insist. Dad would resist. Old John was seldom wrong. The old man's death didn't affect me too much then, although my parents did appear pained. I found out sometime later that John had died alone in a thin-walled shack, with only his radio and scorebook nearby. What bothered me more was that Panera was torn down shortly thereafter, home plate, left as a memorial to him, buried somewhere beneath the three-laned highway. Somehow I don't think it would have mattered to him much that his gifts were bulldozered under, nor would the fact that I never made it to the big leagues.
0: Now, prepare your ears and get ready to meet Derek Muse, the original rascal. A rapscallion, if you will. This little boy from Mr. Calderon's past will prove to be quite the prankster in the next few minutes as Ron fills your ears with tales of croquet mallets, chocolate chip cookies, and cherry trees.
1: My next-door neighbor was the strangest character I had ever met in my whole life. His name was Derek Muse. Granted, we were only six or seven years old, but I knew that Derek Muse was special. For starters, Derek wore a white crop of curly hair everywhere on his oversized head, so much hair that he often ran headfirst into doors and walls because he couldn't see through his tangled mane. Of course, his oversized head did more damage to the walls and doors he smashed into, so I never had to worry about looking out for him. In fact, when we chose teams for touch football, I always picked Derek first. I figured with such a large, hard head and inherent blind spots, I could point him in the direction I wanted to run the ball, and he would lead without hesitation. Anyone who dared to stop him wound up unconscious or dead. So what if Derek spent three minutes in the huddle devising plays that no one could understand or remember? I willingly tolerated his abnormal thinking in exchange for his marvelous blocking head. But what was even more amazing than Derek's hard head was his ability to come up with the zaniest ideas for fun and even crazier solutions to the simplest problems. I'm not sure if there was any correlation between head size and insanity, but in Derek's case there must have been. The simple fact that he would convince his younger brother Jay to run naked out of the house and into the street so his mom would have to leave the kitchen to retrieve him to buy us some time to steal chocolate chip cookies pretty much tells the story. Derek couldn't wait for his mom to walk into another room. He had to endanger a life to satisfy his sweet tooth. Of course, the greatest of Derek's adventures had nothing to do with chocolate chip cookies. Instead. It involved a croquet mallet, Derek's father Claude, his little brother Jay, and a 20-year-old stubborn cherry tree whose only fault was being alive when Derek conceived his field of dreams. Just what was Derek's field of dreams? It was his answer to the cracked asphalt of Summers Avenue. It would become the stadium where we would prove our gladiatorial instincts. It would protect our knees and elbows from scrapes and cuts if we accidentally tackled each other in the street in one of our friendly games of touch football. The only problem for Derek was that his field of dreams was in his backyard, that very same yard of his father's only real child, a blossoming cherry tree Derek's backyard was huge a soft full grass covered nearly the entire yard except for the concrete steps leading down to a 10 by 10 cement patio used for sunday family barbecues and hand drawn hopscotch crucifixes the lawn was a perfect stadium setup that is except for that cherry tree that would soon change however after the first time Derek was blindsided by that very same tree while trying to bring down an opposing ball carrier. After Derek collided with the tree, he sat up, gingerly patted the looming lump on his white shaggy head, called time out, then disappeared around the side of the house mumbling his famous words, pee pee doo doo face, Claude muse. Seconds later, a door slammed shut. We waited for several minutes before I called the game on account of no Derek Everyone limped home while I began my search for him. I searched the kitchen, thinking he was taking a chocolate chip time out. He wasn't there. He wasn't in his bedroom torturing Jay. He wasn't rifling through his mother's underwear drawer. He seemed to have just vanished, vanished like a fart in the eye of a tornado. In fact, I couldn't find anyone, that is, until I heard a thud followed by a second thud and what sounded like wood splintering. I heard another thud, thud, thud. This time, I heard a dwarfish, raspy voice following shortly after, pee-pee, doodle-face, Claude Muse, the voice trailing off like some choking chainsaw. It was coming from the backyard. I rushed out of Derek's room down the hallway to the laundry porch that led into the garage before exiting the side door of the garage that opened into the backyard, and what I witnessed next was the most incredulous sight. Derek Muse was whacking the thick trunk of Claude Muse's cherry tree with a croquet mallet. There was the white-haired gnome, curly white mop soaking from sweat, focusing furiously on the cherry tree carefully measuring each stroke for maximum destruction thud 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 bits of the trunk were peeling away but claude muse's prized possession was still standing Derek, i screamed what are you doing i'm chopping down the cherry tree he mumbled in his best old man's voice call me george washington Then he broke into a laughing fit as he continued to strike at the tree. I'm George Washington, he screamed. Pee-pee-doo-doo-face, Claude Muse. Derek, I yelled again, hoping to drown out his deafening chant and that awful dull sound of the mallet head against the tree trunk. Where's your mom? Derek stopped swinging just long enough to point toward the front of the house toward the street. Out there, he giggled. And yes, Jay was naked.
0: And now for our final story, you will be meeting Link Ross, Summer's favorite neighborhood drunk. Little did Ron know, Link had a secret passion that would not be discovered until it was too late.
1: I'm not sure if I'll ever forget Link Ross. Link Ross was the town drunk, or at least he was Summer's favorite neighborhood drunk. Link never failed to stag around the corner of Summer's and Olive at five o'clock every weekday in his familiar tan London Fog overcoat and brown wingtip shoes, that familiar black briefcase cuddled under his left armpit. In his opposite hand, he clutched tightly to a brown paper bag that concealed a bottle of booze, and as long as I could remember... Link Ross never failed to make his appearance on that corner every weeknight at exactly 5 o'clock. Weekends were different. On Saturdays and Sundays, the town drunk couldn't be found outside during the day, except on those rare occasions when he wanted to fix up the old place. However, the few times Link attempted to work around the house, he ended up falling off the roof or mowing down rose bushes and sprinkler heads while occasionally destroying neighbors' fences. free-falling tree limbs that he had accidentally sawed through. Still, Link looked stylish on those rare appearances, dressed in Bermuda shorts, black dress socks that contrasted his ghostly white legs that wobbled atop a pair of 66 cents Grant's tennis shoes, and an off-white Grant's v-neck undershirt that struggled to contain his 50-year-old belly. Of course, we wondered why Link chose to dress so nerdishly. Then again, I don't think Link really cared what any of us thought. The fact that he brought home a bottle of booze every night said it all, leaving us to our own conclusions that life just wasn't so exciting for him anymore. Then there was the usual neighborhood talk about how Link had lost something very near and dear to him, but what it was no one knew for sure. Link had a nice wife, Betsy, and as far as I could tell their two adopted sons filled the role of biological representations of children of course i was only seven or eight at the time and their two step boys were a few away from graduating from high school so i never really talked with them to find out what went on in their house but everything seemed typical of the families on summers on summers avenue every family was defined by a mother and father at least a kid or two and one automobile family sat down at dinner by six and gathered around the television for laughing before the nightly ritual tucking in of children at 8.30. There was no such thing as divorce, and none of us younger kids knew about losing anything except what we experienced when we lost at marbles or wiffle ball or nightly summertime contests of hide and go seek. The idea that Link Ross had lost something that could make him a drunk wasn't conceivable to me or the other kids on my block. As it was, we weren't even sure what Link did for a living, although we never concerned ourselves with such trivial matters like whose father did what or which stores our mothers patronized. What did we know? We just wanted to play all day in the open fields of all of elementary and enjoy the summer nights running in and out of our neighbor's yards playing hide and go seek. And as long as Link allowed us to use his porch as a hiding place, we didn't bother looking for an excuse to make fun of him. He was the neighborhood drunk, What more did we need to know about him? What I never learned as a child growing up around Link, I learned a year or so after his death and three months before my high school graduation. Betsy Ross had run into my mother at Long's drugstore and explained Link's secret passion for music and the sharing of it with audiences across the world. Unfortunately, he also shared a passion for alcohol and depended upon it to face the world. If only he could have hidden in the orchestra pit or played albums of his music instead of having to perform live. If only. Somewhere between the creation of music and sharing of it, Link Ross felt like an alien. Of course, the neighborhood kids didn't understand Link's problem. We only saw a gray-haired, slightly underweight man buried under a large overcoat and tattered briefcase. That trademark brown bag adorning the old man's hand like a diamond ring accenting the slender finger of a millionaire's wife. How sad that we were just too blind to see past the bottle. But who could blame us? We had learned about life from the judgment of our only eyes to the world at that time, our parents. And how could they have possibly known that the town drunk was a talented musician and creator of beautiful song when he had failed to share his gift with them? It was simple. His secret love was beyond our mortal understanding. Perhaps it was the bottle that made him a bit more human.
0: I have fallen in love with stories. Ever since I was a little kid, my life has been full of great storytellers and people who have experienced amazing things. But why do we tell them? When I started my literary journey with Mr. Calderon about a year ago, I saw him as a man who was stuck in his own time, always talking about things like how the electric garage door opener was the downfall of community. Mr. Calderon, always reminiscing about the old days. But these stories have brought me perspective. As the year moved forward, I began to see that these stories he told us were not for his own blissful nostalgia, but for our personal betterment. So that when we heard these stories, we could see how time used to be and maybe learn from the characters' mistakes. But maybe there is a greater lesson to be learned. Now, the amazing thing about these stories is that the characters are real. They were once just as alive as you and me, and some of them still are. When Derek Muse was born, he brought tears to his parents' eyes. Old John was once a young man who worried about girls and if he was going to do well in that homework assignment. And Link Ross graduated high school with hopes and dreams of a beautiful future. These people were not the creation of Ron Calderon, and these stories were not fabricated in a way that would show you a specific moral or quality. They just do. And even though these people live on in Calderon stories, there are millions of untold stories about normal people that would have changed our perspective on life itself. But they cannot be anything than what they are. Untold. We walk through life and tell ourselves that we will not be one of those untold stories. We will not be forgotten. We believe that one day people will look back and remember us. But the truth is, they won't. Our stories will go untold if we continue to live as Link Ross and Old John. So if there's one thing that these characters can teach you, it's not to be insignificant. Be the best you can be and do the best you can, because tomorrow, who knows who will remember your story.